Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 22. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by my good friend, my doctor and yours. Hello, Rob. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Joe. How are you? I'm doing very good. My wife is back from a long trip visiting her family on the West Coast, and it is so refreshing to have company here. It was quiet for days. And this week is the first normal week of days that we have had in a while. You just got back from vacation not long ago, right? Yeah, I was in um, South Florida, Naples. Had a good time? Yeah, we had a good time on the beach. Uh, the weather was surprisingly cool, but that's only because it rained all the time. Oh. Because um, oh. there was that hurricane that just hit Texas, and there's another one brewing out in the Gulf, and it just you know brings a lot of weather across the state. So it did rain a lot. But we had some nice weather, and we had some stormy weather, and a lot of interesting days at the beach, and it was always random. You never knew what it was going to be like when you got there. Hmm. Interesting. I have been uh, very consistently, I've maintained a really healthy habit of taking outdoor walks every day. And then last week, I just dropped the ball. And I really want to get out and continue again. I was walking two miles a day. And I missed that. The biggest heat wave seems to have just got to Georgia. So it's up to like 95, 96 every day. I went up to um, Amicalola Falls in North Georgia. It's only about an hour and a half from here. Nice. And it's a really beautiful walk in the wintertime, but um, <laughs> it's only about from the top from the top of the falls down to the um, the center, the, the entrance of the park. So you park at the entrance and you walk uphill. It's about a thousand foot gain and almost all that's at the end oh, at a, no, like yeah. a 700 uh, step staircase. Yes. Um, and I did that yesterday and I was going mm. to film some uh, biblical genetics there. Just you know, have a nice background. But it was so incredibly hot. I was, I mean, you couldn't tell my shirt was wet because it was 100% wet and dripping by the time I got done. (laughs) And it was cloudy too, but it was just that, you know, it had just rained and it was cool and cloudy, you think, and 100% humidity sort of day. You can cut it with a knife. Uh, That's right. A very sharp knife. I I love the falls. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry that you had to go through that. Where did you end up doing your video? Did you do it at home? Or? I didn't, uh, just because it was um, I was too sweaty, and by the time I got home, I just wasn't in the right mood. Yeah, so you left and you went to a water park, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> I went home. I just turned the air conditioning on the car at full blast. <laughs> yeah. Well, unlike a normal show, you wanted to talk about a few side items before we get to the main subject. And I think that this is a great idea. For one thing, you brought up something last week that we didn't get to touch upon. And it is really interesting. And it's still there. Yeah. So you want to go into the Three Gorges Dam? This is massive, massive, massive construction project in China. It was super controversial when they did it. They had to displace lots of people, a lot of ancient artifacts and uh, historical areas got drowned when they built this thing called the Three Gorges Dam. And it is huge. It's very, very long and very, very tall. And it produces an amazing amount of electricity for the country of China. Okay. And yet, in their rubber stamp Congress, which almost always is 100% approval, this Mm. thing didn't even get close to 100%. Huh. So that tells you right there that this must have been extremely controversial when it was built. And now that it's been around for, I don't know, 10 or 20 years, they're having record floods. Really? And the 
upstream of this dam, there's lots of flooding, and downstream of the dam, there's lots of flooding, and people are seriously worried about this dam collapsing. Oh my, so that that would be an, an incredible flood. Whoa. Yeah, and you, you got to understand the amount of water, um, it literally changed the rotation of the earth. Oh my word. When they lifted that much water up from the surface by impounding this gigantic lake, and it, they, they literally, you could, you could, it's like, I don't know, nine microseconds per day or something like that. It's, it's, it's almost uncalculable. And there's other things in the world that are changing also that change the rotation of the earth. But you could literally calculate how much this would affect the rotation of the earth. And because it's not on a pole or on the equator, it actually changed the location of the north and south pole. Oh, what? That is possible? <laughs> well, cow. yes, it is possible. Every little thing does. I mean, if you walk across the earth, you're changing the earth. Well, yeah, but I mean, but it's, yeah, it's such an infinitesimal. Yeah, I mean, you, you can't tell. That's not measurable. But this was theoretically measurable. The only thing is that there's other things happening, like glaciers melting and you know, tectonics shifting um, Japan by a couple of feet. Those things have a greater effect. Yeah. Oh. And they all add up together that every year they have to recalculate the length of a day. And every year they have to move the marker that says where the South Pole is. <laughs> it might only be a few inches, but they do. They have to adjust it constantly because the Earth wobbles quite a bit. Anyway, the water that they impounded was so much that they it changed the Earth. Now the dam is threatened and the rainy season just starting. So that would probably mean if it goes down, it would dramatically affect the wobble for a little while, right? No, it'll affect China. Okay. Well, I mean, yes, definitely. Biggest river big in China. Way. You know what's downstream of this dam? Uh, uh, Shanghai? Yeah, Shanghai is downstream of Wuhan. So first Wuhan, of course, that's been f very famous over the last several months, right? Because that's where the coronavirus started. That city would be wiped out. Wow. And then Shanghai, which is the commercial capital of of China and one of the largest cities on earth yeah. will be drowned. Mm. I mean this this will be the Chernobyl oh. of communist China. Wow. But we'll have to do a we'll have to do an episode on nuclear power Chernobyl through Mile Island. That would be cool. Let's let's do that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but Chernobyl is what drove the Soviet Union into oblivion. Mm. The economic fallout from that was such that it drove them to bankruptcy. And if this dam bursts in China, that will be the end of the Chinese Communist Party, I hope. I would not ever wish this on anyone, though, because you're talking a million dead people. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how you can calculate it yet. Because yeah. dams tend to burst quickly. They don't say, oh, the dam's about to break. Hey, everyone, get out of the way. They tend to go snap. And mm. as soon as a crack or any little bit of water comes through, more and more and more, and then within minutes to hours at most, that thing will not be holding that lake back anymore. And they're saying like wow. a 30-meter high wall of water. Oh, that is high. That's 100 feet tall. Yeah. Racing downstream. So within minutes, Wuhan is gone. Maybe an hour. I don't know. I remember what it was. But it's, it's shocking and terrifying. Mm-hmm. Anyway. I grant you just thinking about the possibility that they could really document the event as well. That too could also be very horrifying. Yeah. I, well, just like the, um, the Japanese tsunami. I mean, I have watched hours and hours and hours of that video. I've watched every video I could find and then, you know, over years, go check back to see if any new ones have been posted. Just because I wanted to know about Noah's flood. I wanted to see the effects of water rushing onto land, what it does to buildings and trees, how it 
transports things, how it deposits things. Uh, I wanted to know the destructive power of Noah's flood. And I tried not to watch videos that showed people dying. And every once in a while, I see someone like gets enveloped by water. But most of the time, there's a guy walking, and then they pan back there, and the water's there, and the guy's not there. So you know the guy didn't make it. Mm. Or some people are sitting there, oh, look at the water. And they don't realize how fast it's going to overwhelm them so they don't run. Right. And I've seen you know enough of that is it's really disturbing. And yet, from the physics of it, I wanted to know you know what water does, and so this is going to be a um, a gigantic accidental experiment if this dam breaks. Yeah, and it, it was just super risky when they did it, and lots of people died. And it was extremely expensive, and culturally it was a disaster. But you know, the, we must go on. We must mm. build the biggest and best thing ever. Well, no, that's the that's the Soviet Union mentality, right? And that's what killed them. Something infamous in our world history happening again. Yeah, hubris. Mm. The, the yeah. thought that man can control nature. Man is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't sound like a bad idea if you're, if you're thinking like we can make power and, you know, this will be a testament to our ingenuity. And isn't it awesome we could build the biggest dam in the world? How can that go wrong, guys? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you have a black swan event. Yeah. The totally unexpected thing. That just is, is comes from outer space, you know, a meteorite striking the earth or something like that, you know, something you totally don't expect. And that's what we don't plan for because we're people. Now, I mean, just like, um, our electrical grid in the United States, if we have an electric, uh, electrical, if we have a solar storm the size of one that happened in the 1800s and we know what happened in the 1800s, if that happened today, it would destroy the American electrical system. Really? Huh. And we know it can't do anything to fix it because it's too much money, you know, to prevent this problem. We could do it. We could we could fix the problem and avoid it. But we've built this whole system saying, hey, you know, this is the space weather we you normally have. Let's string all these high tension lines across the planet. No problem. <laughs> In the same way we built all of our major cities across the world to sea level. But history tells us the sea level changes. And yet we built it right there at sea level. Duh. I mean, right. if this one glacier in Antarctica it is literally below sea level, and it's it's huge. I mean, it's deep below sea level, but it's way out into where the ocean should be, and then it's like a, a mountain that's just underwater, and the glacier is sitting on top of that. If the ocean ever gets under, you know, past that little mountain and underneath the glacier, world sea levels go up like two feet. Wow. It's just one glacier, and there's nothing preventing it. I'm not some global warming Nazi. No, but no, no. I, I am a realist, and I do realize that there are things in the world that, you know, that is unstable. And right. we built all of our modern everything, assuming the environment is stable, which is not really what I wanted to talk about. But but you have brought up another another topic, which is just disasters that can happen and have happened. And what we can oh, learn from yeah. scientists. Let's do an episode on disasters. Yeah. Because science cool. has learned a lot from just disasters. Yes. Oh, speaking of other topics, though, you had something else. This is something that you were writing about this week. Yeah, I had an article appear on creation.com. Uh, Lita Kosner did the first half, and I did the second half. The first one was on uh, coronavirus, and the second one was a, um, a follow-up on some of the flat earth stuff, which I don't do much anymore because I don't want to deal with it anymore. But it was just a you know a weekend feedback that creation.com always has. As we're answering letters, I'll post some of them online. And this one person pointed out that he didn't understand something called Olber's Paradox, which is a really cool 
idea, and that is this. If the universe is infinitely old and infinitely large, there's nowhere you can look in space where you won't be looking at a star. So when we say infinitely old, are we talking about like the time scale of evolution of billions of years? And we no, call no, no, that in- infinitely, infinitely old? old. Old enough that starlight can get here from everywhere. So, but who believes that the Earth is infinitely old? Well, back before Big Bang, most of the secularists would have said, oh yeah, the, the universe is in a set, steady state and it, there's no age to it. It's always been here. Okay. Right. But if that was true, there would be no darkness. So it's not that light would eventually travel and be scattered and dissipate well, and everything could gets be. darker. Yeah. It could be, but eventually that light would get to us from everywhere. It's called well, Olber's well. Paradox. Why is there darkness? Now, that's got a couple of answers. One is the universe isn't infinitely old. Naturally. That's you know, the creationist answer. Hasn't been around long enough for light to get here from everywhere. The second is that um, the universe isn't infinitely large. Maybe there's an edge to it. Maybe it doesn't go on forever. The third is Big Bang. See, in the Big Bang model, anything that's more than maybe 13.8 billion light years back in time away from us, we can't see because it's currently moving away from us at faster than the speed of light. Oh, got it. So the edge of the universe is still expanding and firing off as fast or faster than the speed of light. It's not able to travel back to us. Yeah, gotcha. so we're we're within one Hubble volume. That's everything we can see, the radius of about 13.8 billion years in the Big Bang model. That's one Hubble volume. And everything outside of that sphere is receding from us such that that light can never get to us. Therefore, there is darkness. Okay, so then the question was, why isn't the whole sky just full of light all the time? And those are the possibilities? Is that yes, all those are possibilities. But what the questioner asked me was, he goes, I don't get it. As light sources get farther away, they get dimmer. And this is true. Uh, the, the power of light, or the brightness of an object, it decreases by the square of the distance. So if you yeah. move the sun twice as far away, it would be only one quarter as bright. Mm. So why would everything be lit up if there if stars and galaxies are really as far away as everyone believes? Why would we, the sky be lit up? And the answer is, yeah, the sun would be one quarter as bright, but it's also a lot smaller. And in that same it's amount smaller. of size the sun currently takes up, you could stick three more suns, all equally as dim, but all four together. That's four times the light, and it's the same brightness. Or, hmm. or picture this: imagine an infinite wall of candles. Yeah. Sounds like something I would have seen in a fantasy movie. Okay, yeah, fine. Yeah. An infinite wall of candles. Infinite up and down, left and right. This gigantic flat sheet, you know, untold numbers of candles. And they're bright and they're all burning. As you back up from that, an individual candle will get more dim. But more candles will come into view. So it doesn't matter how far away from that wall you are, it will always have the same brightness. Okay. Interesting. Wow. And so, if the universe was infinitely large and infinitely old, the night sky would be as bright as the stars. There would be no night. Mm, That is amazing. Oh, that's really cool, though. No night. There's an old gospel song. No night, no night, no night, no night. Something like that. Anyway, no night in heaven. (laughs) What if heaven... Now, I know Christ is supposed to be the light. Okay, fine. But what if heaven was infinitely old? old and infinitely large 
and it was full of stars. Therefore, there was no night sky. Is that heretical because, to think that? Ooh, well, I don't know. I don't know. Is it? I, I, I mean, is it a heretical if it's only a theory? No, it's not even a theory. That's just a a, a post an postulation. That's a it's an idea. It's not a, even close to a theory. And it might be wrong yeah. because Christ is supposed to be the light, right? There's no need for sun in heaven because Christ is the light. But wait a second. Yeah. That well, means there's shadows everywhere. I mean, what if Jesus walks next to a tree? I mean, half the world will go dark. That's right. <laughs> and then he just walks past it and then it's light again. There you go. Yeah. So that'd be a very strange <laughs> light source. It's like a, a, a Christmas tree walking around the house. The light comes and goes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the Christmas lights. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, listenership, we're not trying to be heretical here. We're just trying to talk physics and Bible, and it no, often no, no, no. leads you into odd directions. Yes. Speaking of odd directions, one of the topics that we wanted to get to, the main topic for today, is an interesting and odd topic. Have we, have we dedicated time to plant life before? No, we haven't. Interesting. Awesome. Well, I think we should get to it. You ready? I, yeah, I am. All right. We're going to talk about photosynthesis. And I'm excited. The thing about photosynthesis is that it's not something that like results in like pictures coming out of a copy machine or something, but it's got that photo and synthesis together. So it sounds like it has something to do with something completely different than plant life. Well, it is photo as in light and synthesis as in making stuff. Yeah. So it's a process of using light to make stuff photosynthesis. Now, what we're going to talk about is multiple doctorates, Nobel Prizes, billions of dollars worth of studying, lots and lots of really smart people figuring things out for a very long time. I've actually had entire classes at the PhD level in nothing but photosynthesis of marine creatures. Whoa. And there's, every time I took a new class or had a section in a class on photosynthesis, I learned something new and more. It's sort of like in, um, in the Chronicles of Narnia, in the last book, when they keep, they keep saying higher up and further in, further up and further in. And they, keep, they run through yes. a gate and they run and run and run. They come to the same gate again and they run and run and run. They come to the same gate and they keep on going in this infinite regression, higher up, you know, further up and further in into levels and levels and levels and levels in this heavenly place. Well, that's not heavenly, but that's sort of like what it's like when you study photosynthesis. It just gets deeper and deeper. And all of a sudden, you're talking about the hexose monophosphate shunt, and you're talking about chrysis, uh, whatever, acid, CAM, chrysylation, <laughs> acid metabolism. Um, you're talking about all these like, this is getting strange, and it never ends. Wow. And it splits off into biochemistry, which is detailed and complex and crazy fun and complicated and keeps you awake at night in cold sweats because you don't understand it sort of stuff. <laughs> so if anyone doesn't remember fully what photosynthesis does, not just on the surface level, but what all does it do? What, like if you had to encapsulate it? Sure. A plant or a photosynthetic organism, we should say, because there are single-celled organisms that are not plants, bacteria too. A living thing can take light combine it with carbon dioxide and water to make sugar. That is so cool. That's it. That's, that's the system. Light plus CO2 plus water equals sugar. Wow. If you get a step deeper, six carbon dioxides and six waters make one sugar and six oxygens. Oh, we just really? thought about oxygen. Did, yeah. All the oxygen we breathe comes from plants. Most of it from marine algae. Fine. But that oxygen comes from photosynthesis, and that's why animals exist. Without photosynthesis... Why marine algae? 
Why, why not light the forests? Because there's so much surface area in the oceans. There's simply more of it than forests. And second, forests, most of them, the old growth forests anyway, they're pretty much, they use up as much carbon dioxide as they produce. So, you know, plants will, or sorry, they use up as much oxygen as they produce, carbon dioxide do, but they're both in balance. They might, they might produce a lot of oxygen, but the leaf litter that's decaying on the floor of the forest uses up oxygen. Okay, they might suck up a lot of carbon dioxide from the air, but the leaf litter as decomposing releases the carbon dioxide back into the air. So something like the Amazon rainforest doesn't necessarily have a net production of oxygen. It probably does, but it's not as much as you might think. The marine algae, though, they produce a lot more oxygen. And strangely, most of us produce in the Arctic and Antarctic because they get six months of light. Oh, wow. Huh. I would not have thought that. Because the water's cold, there's not a density difference between the warm upper and cool lower. And so the water's constantly circulating throughout the entire water column. And any nutrients on the bottom are brought back up into light and they feed algae. This is why whales go far north and far south because of all the algae. Because the algae breeds krill and krill are whale food. Nice. Anyway. I was wondering what sea creatures eat just the other day. But anyway, that's off subject. Another thing off subject. I just learned about this today. A, a hybrid between a fin whale and a blue whale. Ooh. And apparently it's not the first one. They've, they've been like four or five recordings of these hybridizations between these two so-called species. Ah, oh, that's cool. Anyway, whales, whole another topic. All right, <laughs> so but we're talking about photosynthesis, right? Yeah. This is the most improbable chemical reaction imaginable because it doesn't work until all the parts are in place. It goes in a circle. The starting product is made into sugars and the starting product again. What? Huh? (laughs) This is really crazy. But not only that, light destroys biological molecules. Light is incredibly destructive to biological molecules. It completely obliterates DNA. It's too hot. It ruins fats. Any any kind of a pigment. You've seen old pictures where the the blue is gone and just kind of, or the red is gone and the picture looks kind of greenish. Mm hmm. That's because pigments are photosensitive. Almost all pigments are photosensitive. And some are much more photosensitive than others. So light is dangerous. And in the process of making sugars, photosynthesis makes a poison called oxygen. You've heard of oxidation, right? Yes. Rusting, um, oxidizers, like oxyclean, you know, oxyclean. Well, oxidizers are used as cleaning agents. They destroy things. Oxygen is really bad stuff. Why on earth would any organism ever want to manufacture a poison? And how could it discover or, you know, start using this photosynthesis system before it had the poison regulation in place? I don't think it could. I don't think so either. But it's like, um, it's like trying to catch a bullet. You couldn't do it. It would destroy you. But that's what photosynthesis is like. The wavelength of light is strong enough, has enough energy per photon to destroy the molecules that are trying to catch it. And without a very elegant system and a very balanced and beautiful way of, of handling this energy, plants would almost instantly die from exposure to sunlight. And the molecules that are used are complicated and they're all produced in other biochemical pathways and some of them aren't used in other places. They're only used in photosynthesis. Some of them are used in other places also. So you have to have this entire network of genes and gene regulation and some balancing system to get all these parts in place so that you can do the improbable, which is to take sunlight and convert it into sugar. What? <laughs> Who would have ever thought of this? Sunlight <laughs> really isn't food. 
And yet here, here we have plants literally eating the sun. You know, I was driving up into the mountains yesterday and it was, it was a little overcast. And so the, the greens were really popping. And all of a sudden I realized that from the tops of the trees exposed to direct sunlight to the forest floor that never sees direct sunlight, everything was the same color. Maybe slight differences in the amount of green between one species and another, but basically everything was green. And there was a wall of green and I couldn't look anywhere without seeing green, maybe a tree trunk. Maybe, but mostly it was just green because plants are absorbing every single photon that's available. That's not green. They absorb red light and blue light and not the green. And that's, so green light is basically wasted. Now, theoretically, oh, okay. you can harvest it, but that's just not the way it's designed. Plus, there's too much light. Oh, I'll get to that. We'll get to photo protection at the end, I hope, if we get there. But there is too much light. Plants cannot possibly absorb all the sunlight that strikes them. They have to get rid of a lot of it. So it's like getting hit with a machine gun. You have all these photons striking these sensitive molecules that have to be exactly positioned literally right next to each other so they can hand the energy off from one molecule to the next. And they have to be organized in such a way that they're ready to do this elegant and beautiful dance. And they literally play hot potato. So the first thing that happens is a photon strikes what's called a photosystem. It's a whole bunch of pigments, including chlorophyll. And that photon will bounce around in there until it gets to what's called the antenna pigment, which is a chlorophyll molecule, the center of this photosystem. And that energy will be used to rip a water molecule apart. And we get H+, hydrogen ions, which will be run through the ATP synthase engine to make ATP, which will be used in the next step. But you get H+, and you get oxygen. And that's the first step. That's where oxygen comes from. All the oxygen in the world that we breathe comes from a photon striking a photosystem in a leaf of a photosynthesizing living thing that rips water molecules apart. Okay. So you said that oxygen is a poison. And when you say poison, is it a poison to them or is it Mm -hmm. even in a, to some level of speaking also poisonous to us or just poisonous to them? Absolutely poisonous to us. Oxygen will kill you dead. Oxygen is very tightly regulated. I mean, think about it. It's not floating freely in our blood. It's bound to hemoglobin molecules that transport it and release it where it's needed. Whoa. We don't concentrate oxygen in our body. We, I mean, sure enough, it's dissolved in the blood also fine, but it's, it's regulated tightly. You don't want a lot of oxygen in the world. Well, the plants will burn up. Forest fires, you double the amount of oxygen. Forest fires would, would kill the world. I mean, it's, it's, it's really critically important to regulate the amount of oxygen. Hmm. Anyway, so the first step is this cannonball photon is grabbed by the photosystem that it lets it bounce around to get to the antenna molecule, which then rips water apart, makes oxygen, hydrogen ions, and then that, mo- that, that, that electron is handed off to another molecule that's not chlorophyll. I don't want to go through all the names of all the molecules because we'll lose everybody. But it's handed (laughs) off to another molecule that changes shape. And then it's handed off to another molecule that changes shape. And it's handed off to another molecule that changes shape. And handed off to another. And these are all different molecules. It's not like the same one every time. They're different uh, carbon-containing molecules. And so if you're changing the shape, that means you're losing energy, right? There's The work is being done to move a molecule. And then it's handed off to another one, and some more work is done, and then some more work is done, and some more work is done. And it eventually ends up at another photosystem that requires more light to hit it, and that will boost the electron up and hand it to another molecule, which then goes down another chain. It's called an electron transport chain. And every time these molecules are changing shape, they're shoving hydrogen ions into the inside 
of the chloroplast. And now we have all these hydrogen ions building up inside it, and they're going to find a little hole called the ATP synthase motor, which we should also cover someday, because I know we've got some cool stuff on creation.com about that. But they zip through the ATP synthase motor, which spins at almost 100% efficiency, takes adenosine diphosphate and phosphate and combines it to make adenosine triphosphate, which is called the energy currency of the cell. And that then is used to make sugars in the second step. We'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> but this is already crazy. I mean, already people's eyes are glazing over because the unbelievable complexity of all this. And I'm not even using big words. Right. There's a lot to it for something that, I mean, like you would think that something doing all this would be noisy. You'd go outside and just hear trees like (laughs) churning, just grinding their gears. point. If we were making it, it would definitely be noisy, but it's not. It's not losing energy. It's grabbing almost, almost Every single bit of energy from that photon is used efficiently, which means it's incredibly fine-tuned. In fact, if it worked inefficiently, there would be no photosynthesis. Like, like imagine you didn't have this electron transport chain, right? Let's say you've only got a couple of molecules. You have chlorophyll. It, it rips water apart. It sends energy of the electron to a molecule, which pumps one hydrogen inside the the thylakoid membrane inside the chloroplast, and then it goes away. You would never get enough energy in that sort of a system to manufacture enough hydrogen ions to manufacture enough ATP to assemble the parts necessary to do photosynthesis. Mm. You can't just make one hydrogen. You need a lot. You need a whole bunch of them. And if you if you skip a step in there, you're not going to have enough left over to actually save energy. It would be costing you energy. Therefore, you'd have no energy. You'd have no way to make energy. Because photosynthesis is the basis of life. In fact, even in the evolutionary model, some of the, I think probably the earliest organism that anyone has ever identified is blue-green algae, which is photosynthetic. So somehow that incipient life figured out the most improbable chemical reaction from almost day one, which I'm sorry, Mr. Evolutionist, you can figure that one out. I don't think it happened that way. And I'm not trying to use an argument from incredulity like, oh, that's stupid. I can't believe that's true. No, you can't believe that. No, I'm saying this is so utterly ridiculous and utterly improbable. We actually don't even have to talk about it. I'm sorry. Life did not evolve that way. Life had to have been created. And photosynthesis is one of the greatest examples that we could use. Wow. What I, what I think is so incredible about it is how, I don't know if stable is the right word, but that it, it just works on everything that grew out of a seed that it, that it works mm. so consistently it takes its time and we have lots of plants that outlive us yeah. that don't go anywhere they're consuming uh, water and nutrients and light to construct themselves it's it's really it's really mind-boggling what they're really doing i never even thought of that the most successful organisms on the planet can't even move yeah they might float in the water, <laughs> fine, but they can't get up and yeah. change their environment. It's live and die based on what you're exposed to. Wow, that's a cool thought. And yet they have conquered the world. I think it was they were designed to feed the world, but yeah, whatever. All right, so we have all this ATP now, right? And yes. We're going to run it through this organi- this molecule. We're going to run it through this molecule called ATP synthase, which is ATP literally synthase. a machine. It is a circular motor that whirs at a very high speed. And it makes ATP. Meanwhile, that electron is in that second transport chain. It's going to make another molecule called NADPH. Sure, probably even should have said that. I'm trying not to use big words. But that (laughs) NADPH is going to be used in the next uh, cycle. So we have what's called the light-dependent reaction. That's what we just described. 
And now we have the light independent reaction. They used to call it the dark cycle, but that's not good because it happens in the light also. It doesn't only happen at nighttime. In fact, it shuts down at night because it runs out of ATP and they need APH. Um, but it's, it's called the light independent cycle. So we don't need photons to power this. We need the ATP from the last cycle to power this. And this is when plants take carbon dioxide and make sugar out of it. So we start with a, <sighs> a five carbon sugar. Now, most people know that, that sugar is six carbons, at least table sugar has six carbons, well, at least one, one half of it does anyway. Uh, glucose is a six carbon sugar, but DNA, right, uh, it has ribose, which is a five carbon sugar. So there's different sugars are different numbers of carbons in them. We're going to start with a five carbon sugar called ribulose 1,5-biphosphate. So ribulose is a sugar and has two phosphates on it, and we're going to add carbon dioxide to it using an incredibly important molecule called RUBP carboxylase oxygenase, or Rubisco. Rubisco is probably the most abundant biological molecule on Earth, and <laughs> it drives the world. Without Rubisco, there would be no life on Earth. No birds, no bees, <laughs> no people, no plants. This one molecule is literally the basis of all ecology, except for a couple of things we, or a, little, a few, let's say, except for a little bit of stuff we get from chemosynthetic bacteria and hydrothermal vents, but that really doesn't count compared to the amount of uh, energy we get from this Rubisco in green plants. Everything else is, is almost nothing. But we take this five carbon sugar, we add CO2 to it, that makes a six carbon molecule, right? But it's uh -huh. unstable. It almost instantly splits into two three carbon molecules. But then those three carbon molecules are combined into a five carbon molecule, which is the one we started with. We're adding ATP, we're yeah. adding NADPH, we're adding carbon dioxide, and we're taking this five carbon sugar, making three carbon sugars, and then splitting them apart and recombining them in very complicated ways in a circular system that remakes five carbon sugars again. Wow. And it, after a couple laps, though, there's a couple of carbons left over, and that's when you get one C6H12O6 sugar. Six carbons, 12 hydrogens, and six oxygens is the basic chemical formula for a sugar. So are plant-based materials the main place where we extract sugar? Or I, I'm like, I was wondering, mm -hmm. like, that, that is the primary resource of sugar. Um, I think it's the only one. Okay. Huh. Where else are we going to get because it from? Because I wasn't yeah. sure if it was like other minerals that, that are used. No, 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 not at all. Or, yeah. Not at all. Uh, so, uh, um, sugar cane and sugar beets is where we get most of our sugar from. I guess we could get it from algae right. if you wanted to have bad tasting sugar, but you know. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm doing okay. All right. Good. So there you go. That is. The basics of photosynthesis and the amazing system that it is. But we're not done. So, oh, okay. Because I was about to ask, how does, I, I know this might sound really dumb, but is getting a tan at all akin to getting photosynthesis? Not at all. Okay. So totally different kind of process. Because I know totally like different. when we, when we do get a tan, our body is uh, creating vitamin D. Or the uh, sunlight is turned yes. into vitamin no, D? No, no, yeah, you're creating vitamin D, yes. Okay, I, I was just wondering if there were But vitamin were D like has nothing to do with how analogous. dark your skin is. Right, well, yeah. I, I didn't think so much about the color, like, so, but more about like what your body is doing with that sunlight that it absorbs and, you know, when it turns something into vitamin D. You know, wondered if there were parallel processes for different kinds of creatures. Anyway, go on. All right. So now we'll get to the, the last and really cool part 
another really cool part about photosynthesis, and that is how the plants keep from dying. Oh, yeah. Because huh. there's a lot of energy striking a leaf and a lot of damaging energy. I mean, look what sunlight does to our skin. Look what it would do to anything you leave outside. Sunlight is bad. And if these machines happening inside the cell ran unchecked, the cell would die. There'd be so much oxygen. All the byproducts would be produced. All the reactants would be used up. I mean, it, it would the whole system would come crashing down. So it needs to be regulated. And the first thing that regulates it is the first molecule in the in the Calvin cycle, the light independent cycle. It's RUBP carboxygen. It's Rubisco or RUBP carboxylase oxygenase. It has a reverse reaction to it. It will take oxygen and burn it and ruin everything. It just wastes the energy. So as oxygen builds up, Rubisco gets inefficient. It starts skipping. It starts burning the energy it's trying to save. Stops working efficiently. And so some evolutionists or some you know, Christian skeptics are like, hey, that's stupid. Why would God make something that's, that wastes energy? Uh. No, the answer is it's saving the plant. It's keeping it from dying. There's enough oxygen, man. Slow everything down. We have enough. Everyone chill. Cool down here. I'm just going to get rid of this stuff that we just made. I'm just going to waste it so we can't use it. Everything's cool. Okay, now we got, don't have enough oxygen. Okay, now we'll start making a little more. And it's a self-regulating system that's built into the system without that ability Photosynthesis was self-destruct. Wow. So this is an extremely well-designed system. And it's amazing at every, every angle you look at it. And that gets into the last thing I want to talk about. It's called photoprotection. Photoprotection. Well, a plant doesn't photosynthesize all day long. It actually usually stops photosynthesizing maybe 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning and doesn't start again until 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Huh. Because it has to tune itself for X amount of production. It's just like a factory. You can't have a factory just turn on and run a full blast. Or a factory wouldn't do well if, you know, the, the trucks driving in to drop off raw materials and the trucks coming to pick up finished product aren't operating on a schedule. Your factory would, would break down. You couldn't have a bunch of raw materials just piling up on the floor. It would overwhelm everything. And you wouldn't want to waste your money having trucks coming and take away the finished product if you didn't have any finished product to give to them. So everything has to be regulated. And for a plant, I mean, you're sitting there and you're going from zero sunlight to maximum sunlight to zero sunlight every single day. And you want to get the most energy you can out of that sunlight. So you've got to tune your system to work optimally at some level of sunlight. And you don't want to tune it to work optimally at noon because there's not much time that's as bright as noon. If you tuned it to work great at noon, you wouldn't be working very well in the morning or the evening. Yeah. But if you tune it to work in the morning, you can also work in the evening. That's right. Huh. But in the middle, you just clamp everything down. And so wow. plants are designed to turn off the machinery called photoprotection. Huh. This is one reason why Plants do really well in a greenhouse, even though the amount of light is nothing like it is in the natural world. They can optimize their their production for that amount of light. And since that amount of light never changes, they just keep going and going and going and going and going. They never go through photoprotection. They don't shut down. Wow. Cool. And this that is one is reason amazing. why the forest that I was looking at was green. From the tops of the trees, the floor of the forest. Some of those plants never saw direct sunlight. Some of those plants are exposed to the harshest sunlight that Georgia can offer. And they're all green and they're all photosynthesizing as optimally as possible. And the fact that the trees are tuned to photosynthesize in bright light means that the ferns can be tuned to photosynthesize not in bright light. And all those photons are used. And if there's a, a place where there's no 
chlorophyll, a plant is going to grow into that place and fill that area with chlorophyll. And almost all the available photons hitting that forest are used to the maximum possible efficiency, even though a lot of them are wasted on purpose because of the requirements of engineering. And our God is an amazing engineer because he's using a radically improbable system that's creating poisons, that's operating at incredible efficiency with molecules that would never exist unless they were used for this system in a cyclical reaction that's actually making the same things it starts with. What? (laughs) That's amazing. And if it doesn't work from beginning to end, there's absolutely no purpose for any of these parts being in place. And that's what photosynthesis is. It's one of the greatest testimonies to God's creative genius that we could ever imagine. One of the things happening all around us all the time. And we're completely oblivious to it, usually. Yeah. So earlier you brought up that there were there's plant life and bacteria, but isn't there other sea creatures like corals that do some photosynthesis? Yes, but they don't do the photosynthesis themselves, corals or animals. They actually are farmers, and inside of their cells, they have dinoflagellates, which usually are swimming algae, but in this case, they don't have any swimming things, and they just hold them inside their cells, and they give the algae a lovely place to live, bright, sunlit, tropical waters. In fact, if you measure the amount of algae in the water column, from the coral to the surface, maybe you know, 30, 50 feet, there's less algae there than the algae inside the coral itself. So they're good farmers. And corals wow. are usually brown colored. That's because that's the color of the algae that's inside their tissues. Now, sometimes they could be pink or blue if they have an extra pigment, but usually the coral is just a dull brown color. And yet the algae, so it works like this. You have, you have the, the cellular membrane for the coral cell. And then you have a vacuole. And inside that vacuole is the algae. It's actually a double vacuole. So you've already gone through three membranes. And then the algae has a membrane. And then inside it, it has a chloroplast, which has a membrane. And inside that, it has what's called a thylakoid, which is a membrane. And that's where the ATP is manufactured as the hydrogens are coming out of that thylakoid membrane. So it's like layer upon layer upon layer. And when you finally get to it, the coral sitting there, it's farming these algae. The algae are making sugars. So the coral has a, has a way to get carbohydrates in a desert. Cause the tropical oceans, the reason the water's clear is cause nothing lives there. Oh, wow. The reason that the water's murky up in, you know, in the Arctic or in Antarctica is because there's so much algae in the water, you can't see through it. But that, yeah. that I, the thermocline, the, the density difference between the, the warm upper sunlit waters and the cooler darker waters it means that the, the warm water doesn't mix with the cold water and it's permanently warm on top and permanently cold. When you get down, you know, a couple hundred feet, it's cold down there. So every time a fish eats something and poops, that fecal pellet falls out of the water column and disappears into deep dark ocean and all those nutrients are stripped out of the water column. That's not that way in the northern and southern latitudes. But in the central, in the tropics, there's no nutrients. It's a desert. And that's why coral reefs are so incredibly important for productivity in tropical areas. Because the one place we get a lot of carbon fixed. Carbon equals food for multiple organisms in that environment. So you have parrotfish that come and they'll, they'll, they'll grind down, they'll bite the coral. In fact, if you ever spook a parrotfish, he'll poop sand. He'll swim, <laughs> swim, swim, poof, 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 all the sand comes. Well, that sand is crunched up coral. And then a shark comes and eats wow. a parrotfish. And so now we have a food web based on photosynthesis 
that's happening inside a membrane, inside a membrane, inside a membrane, a membrane, 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 like five levels deep inside the coral. Wow. That's so neat. <laughs> There's so many cool aspects of this. It really is. But that is probably a good place to wrap up for this episode. Man, a lot to chew on. That is a good enough episode that you got to listen to it twice, if not three times. But it's, it's one of those things where even if we don't understand it, so what? We still get to awe at the marvelous complexity of this ingeniously designed system. I know that if I'm going outdoors and I see the trees and the grass, I got to cut the yard, that I, I, you know, I see a rabbit, you know, out in the yard and a couple of birds, maybe one of those bigger birds of prey nearby, then I'm thinking the grass is pretty simple. I'm, uh, the trees are pretty boring. You know, they're very <laughs> base compared to wrong, the rabbit bounding around the yard. And wrong. Yeah. That plant is more complicated than the rabbit. Yeah. It might not have about. nerves and a brain, but has a much more complex biochemistry and has a lot more genes than a rabbit. Yeah. Because it still burns sugars just like we and rabbits do. That's our food. Well, it's plant food too. So they have all of the genes for respiration that we do. They have all the genes for cellular division and all sorts of things like that. But they also have all the genes for photosynthesis and we don't. Mm. Never going to see this, the world around me the same way again. Good. <laughs> hey, I like that. That should be our byline for a podcast. You'll never see the world the same way again. That's right. I like that. Uh, I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll work on that. We'll see. That's, a, that's not a bad idea. Thank you so much for joining us on this quest. If you want to dig deeper into these topics, you can find links to the stuff we discussed in the show notes on our website. Uh, hop over to nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 22. The show notes are also with this episode in your podcast player app. You should also check out Rob's content at biblicalgenetics.com, his Facebook page or YouTube channel, where you can see the videos and join discussions in the comments. And if you want to catch up with me, I am at JCS Darnell on Twitter. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. You have been listening to Equinox, 